earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today I'm resurrecting one of the earliest sessions in our series, Oh, That First Means That, in light of July 4th's holiday and how America won its freedom 246 years ago. In these sessions, we've taken a closer look at some popular Bible passages we've believed meant one thing, but are discovering they actually mean something very different, aren't we? And so, today's session 20 is appropriately called Set Free From What? The podcasts of these sessions are found at faithtalk1360.com. Just search for local program podcasts. Friends, it's important I continue reinforcing a statement I've been making because the Bible really does have a story to tell us. In fact, it's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But what do we preachers, teachers, and pastors tend to do? And sadly, average Christians do the same thing. We make even force or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, I'll still say, shame on us. And friends, today's text provides a great opportunity to stress and emphasize the value and importance of context when seeking to interpret a passage or a portion of Scripture. And allow me to drive home another point I've been making, that the author and inspirer of our Judeo-Christian scriptures, our Bible, is the Holy Spirit, according to 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. So, friends, isn't God's word worthy of greater respect? Isn't the Holy Spirit deserving of our respect as we read it, rather than just cavalierly spouting off what we think a verse means? Today's text is actually two closely related statements by Jesus in John 8, 31, 32, and 36, which say, If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 36 adds, So, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, before you begin conceptualizing what you think these verses mean, remember today's session title, Set Free From What? Because this is the question of the day. And let me take a moment here and share a well-known worship song from a well-known ministry, the lyrics inspired by today's verses. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he bought me in. Oh, his love for me. Then the chorus chimes in, Who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Then verse 2 continues, Free at last, he has ransomed me. His grace runs deep. While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. 
Then the second chorus and the bridge add these phrases. In my father's house there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. Friends, I'm going to keep you in suspense for just a minute or so because I'd like to ask a question that some of you probably have the answer to because you were alive when it happened. For others, you likely learned this from history or a video. My question is, are any of you familiar with Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech? Well, it occurred in August 1963 in Washington, D.C. And by any chance, do you know how he concluded his speech? He concluded it with these words, Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty, we are free at last! Now, friends, let's suppose in January you visited a church on the Sunday before Martin Luther King Day, and in the sermon you heard the pastor say, Our dear brother and reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said it, his famous speech, I have a dream speech, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And immediately he remarks, Brothers and sisters, aren't you glad we are free at last? In Christ we are free from our sin through the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Amen? Hallelujah! We're now children of God. Yes, we are. Well, what would you think of that sermon comment? I would hope you'd think to yourselves, Hmm, I don't think that's what Dr. Martin Luther King was really talking about. And you know what, friends? You'd be 100% right. In fact, I have a transcript of that speech, and King's final words right before that free at last ending were, When we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty we are free at last. Now, with reference to John eight thirty one, thirty two, and 36, and the song I quoted earlier, you could easily say to me, Pastor Tom, what's the big deal? After all, what the song says is still true, isn't it? And in the spirit of Shakespeare's Hamlet, I'll reply, Aye, there's the rub. Because it's not like we're countering false doctrine here, right? It's not like we're defending a truth others are corrupting or denying, right? So what is the big deal here? Well, I have some song facts that went public, so I'll convey what the two worship pastors who co-wrote that song said in an interview. They penned the song after a conversation about the huge number of people who seem to be struggling with anxiety and stress. In the interview, they said, one of the top challenges that young people face is anxiety over their careers or relationships or specific issues. We wanted to write a song that would speak to that, which is Be Still. Through that process, we wrote Who You Say I Am, because we realized that it is so important to understand how God sees us and what he says about us. It's so important to go to the scriptures and read who God says we are. The way we show God is determined by the way we know God. The interviewer added that one of the co-writers then explained that when he introduced the song to his church, he read John 8. 
saying, Our identity resides in knowing ourselves in Christ and living within the stability of knowing we are who God says we are. Now, friends, what's the task before us as readers and interpreters of our Bibles? And in today's case, Jesus is teaching in John 8. Our task includes not resting on a supposed surface truth, as valuable as that truth may be. Our goal should be to take hold of the truth that lurks behind the context. In other words, the truth that's crying out to be told, guided by both the cultural and spiritual context of John 8, which is actually chapters 5 through 10. Jesus definitely has a word for us today, as he did for his Jewish religious leaders and the common Jews of his day. Now, i got to be honest with you, friends. If we were to read John chapter 8, we would never come to the conclusions that the song says it contains, despite the fact that what the song says is true. Again, here's the rub. The fact that the song expresses some great truths doesn't mean that the song's message matches John chapter 8's message. Once again, friends, you can easily say, So, Pastor Tom, what's the big deal here? The big deal here is what we steal or take away from the intended hearers of Jesus' words in his day, thereby stealing or taking away its valuable lesson from our modern-day hearers. And to understand this difference, let me set the scriptural stage. Because at first glance, John 8's verses under scrutiny appear to teach an obvious truth. Some Bible teachers and students readily and easily conclude that Jesus was speaking of the liberating truth of the gospel for all people who are sinners. After all, that's the assumption in the song, which says, Who am I that highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. And while I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. But our duty as readers and interpreters of Scripture, friends, is to recognize that in spite of this truism, there's a dialogue between Jesus and a skeptical audience of both Jewish religious leaders and common Jews who were either agreeing with the religious teachers or siding with Jesus' teachings, which actually opposed the religious leaders. This tension gets hotter as time goes on, as reflected in John chapters 5 through 10, the broader context of John 8, worth consulting to get a proper picture. Interestingly, my background in commercial and fine art had me learn about how artists in the Middle Ages and Renaissance periods communicated, which is an apt parallel picture of how the story develops in John chapters 5 through 10. You see, during those periods in history, primarily in churches and cathedrals, many paintings were composed in panels, from two up to ten panels, each with their own names, like diptych for two, triptych for three, and so on. For five or more panels, they just used polytych. These panel paintings had a main theme, usually introduced in a larger middle panel, and then branched out on either side in smaller panels to tell their full story. So imagine with me that John 8 functions like the larger middle panel because it nearly falls in the center of chapters 5 through 8, the primary theme being Jesus' identity as the Messiah and God manifested in the flesh, as well as how his teachings matched up with the 
prevailing teachings of the Jewish religious leaders. Notice, friends, I said, Jesus' identity as Messiah, not our identity in Christ, as the song's writers suggest. So, in order to set the proper scriptural stage, it's crucial we have at least a basic working knowledge of just who the Jewish religious leaders were when Jesus showed up in the first century Greco-Roman world. And at times, it requires us to do some background homework in searching the scriptures, so our perception of their teachings lines up with what the scriptural revelation. This is because Jesus was a reinterpreter of the Mosaic Law, as Matthew 5-7 through reveal. And therefore, it's to our advantage to know just why Jesus had to reinterpret it, or as some say, better interpret it, even correctly interpret it, or communicate its intent. This prompts us to ask a great question. What did the Pharisees, scribes, and teachers of the law do to the law that Jesus opposed? Well, to get a balanced understanding of the Jewish religious leaders from Jesus' perspective, we first need to consult the Old Testament a little, which provides a backstory to the New Testament that ultimately assumes this connection. So first, Jeremiah 5, 1-5 for a general assessment by God of the spiritual condition of Israel and its leaders. Roam about through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take notice. Seek in her public squares. If you can find a person, one who does justice, who seeks honestly, then I will forgive her, meaning Jerusalem. Although they say, as the Lord lives, certainly they swear falsely. Sound familiar? This describes hypocrisy. Verse 3 says, They have refused to accept discipline. They've made their faces harder than rock. They refuse to repent. Verse 4 adds, They do not know the way of Yahweh or the judgment of their God. Verse 5 goes on, I will go to the great and speak to them, likely the spiritual leaders, perhaps even the Levitical priests, for they know the way of Yahweh and the judgment of their God. But together they too have broken the yoke and burst the restraints. This reference to yoke is a positive reference to the law of God and its restraining power over people's behaviors. But yoke will become a buzzword, so keep your ears peeled. Next, Jeremiah 23, 1-4, a more direct reference to God's view of shepherds, the title given to the spiritual overseers of his chosen people. Woe to the shepherds who are causing the sheep of my pasture to perish, and are scattering them, declares Yahweh. Therefore, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away, and have not been concerned about them. Behold, I am going to call you to account for the evil of your deeds, declares Yahweh. In verses 3 and 4, God says, He himself will be their shepherd. Gather them and raise up fitting shepherds to tend them. Finally, the Old Testament piece de resistance, Ezekiel 34. Friends, read this entire chapter and compare what it says about God's shepherds to your church's pastors and see if they match up. You may be surprised. Ezekiel 34 best contrasts what shepherds ought to be doing versus what they're actually doing and neglecting. Here are some highlights. 
Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Say to those shepherds, this is what the Lord God says. Woe, shepherds of Israel, who've been feeding themselves. Should the shepherds not feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back, nor have you searched for the lost, but with force and with violence you have dominated them. They scattered for lack of a shepherd and became food for every animal of the field. My flock was scattered all over the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. This is what the Lord God says, Behold, I am against the shepherds and will make them stop tending sheep so the shepherds will not feed themselves any more. For the Lord God says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd cares for his flock, so I will care for my sheep and will rescue them. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing place will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down in a good grazing place and feed in rich pasture. I myself will feed my flock and lead them to rest, declares the Lord. Sounds a lot like Psalm 23. Read Psalm 23 for its its list of what a shepherd does. Then God goes on, I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and strong I will eliminate. I will feed them with judgment. No wonder Jesus scathingly denounces the first century shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and teachers of the law, with his many woes, echoing God's woes in the Old Testament. Here are a few from Matthew 23, but first listen to how Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders. Here's another buzzword, burdens. Keep your ears peeled for this one. Jesus continues, they do all their deeds to be noticed by other people, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets and the seats of honor in the synagogues and personal greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi. Well, friends, Jesus sums up his rebuke with this, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Then follows his eight stinging woes, some key ones being, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven in front of people. You do not enter it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the other. Did you catch that? The weightier provisions of the law being justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You outwardly appear righteous to people, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You snakes, you offspring of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? 
Now listen to one of the woes that Luke records in Luke 11:46. One of the lawyers, that is experts in the law, replied, "Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too." But Jesus said, "Woe to you lawyers as well, for you load people with burdens that are hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers." Notice our buzzword, burden again. And in Luke 12:1 Jesus says to his disciples while they were with a crowd, "Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy." Now friends, the greatest demonstration of Pharisaic hypocrisy is the parable Jesus told in Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I urge you to read this on your own, but take note of how Jesus concludes this parable. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, notice the difference in how the Pharisees viewed themselves and how Jesus viewed them. This is why it's so important to know this backstory when it comes to the religious leaders or shepherds of Jesus's day. This makes a tremendous difference in how we view Jesus' statement in Matthew 11:28 and 29, and you know it well, don't you? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Ding, ding, ding. Here it is again, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Ding, ding, ding. In other words, not the yoke of the Pharisees, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, not proud like the Pharisees. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear, and my burden is light. Now, friends, this whole idea of yoke and burden of the law that the Pharisees are holding over the heads of the Jewish people comes to a head at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. You would do well to read this chapter, of which I'll just highlight some key decisions made. This council is necessary because a dispute arose with some of the Jewish converts from the sect of the Pharisees, who were advocating that Gentile converts first convert to Judaism before they can be truly saved. We see this in Acts fifteen five. But the crucial verses and decisions of this council are represented in verse ten and verse twenty eight. Verse ten tells us Peter stood up at the council and cleared the air, saying, "Why are you putting God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, ding ding ding, which is neither our forefathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus." Well, friends, the council concludes with composing a letter to be dispatched to all the churches in the region, and James, the shepherd pastor of the Jerusalem church, suggests the content of the letter. James' concluding words in verse twenty-eight are: "For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you." The Gentiles, no greater burden, ding ding ding, than these essentials. Now, notice that these essentials did not include circumcision or submitting to the law of Moses as a ritualistic exercise. Friends, all this to say that when we read John eight thirty one, thirty two, and thirty six through their first century cultural and religious lens. We should read them this way. 
you will know the truth that I proclaim to you, and the truth that I proclaim will set you free from the legalistic proclamations of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. So if the Son sets you free from these legalistic demands, you will indeed be free from the Jewish religious leaders smothering legalistic yokes or chains with which their teachings are trying to bind you. So, friends, isn't this equally a message for today? How many churches have put the same heavy burdens on its members, teaching obedience to rules and regulations from a legalistic standpoint? Shouldn't we be liberating today's people as well with Jesus' words? A resounding yes! Amen! Amen! Well, friends, we're nearing the end of today's program, which will close with an email where you may write me. One listener wrote in on part 17, Are my prayers gutsy enough? With this, I have always felt that prayer is a conversation with God. I pray daily in my car on my ride into work in the wee hours. I pray in simple words as a child would approach a father, and somehow I know he listens. For me, the bottom line is to keep talking and keep the conversation going. Blessings! Well, blessings to you for sharing this. And please keep in mind, friends, that A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program, and we have not been immune from the challenging financial and economic times we're in. So please consider financially helping to keep A Word from the Word on the air with your kind support. Email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. 